Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Okay, this is uh, the September podcast 2016, and this one is going to focus on lighting. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the September 2016 podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about lighting. I have gotten a ton of questions in, many that are time sensitive, so I wanted to try and address those as quickly as possible to uh, help our community in their efforts and their projects and some of their movies that they have coming up. I hope I'm not too late. I imagine that even if I am, there's a lot for the whole community to learn based on these questions, and they're really, really good. And I cannot thank you all enough for uh, continuing to submit these questions. We need to always be asking these questions, so it helps all of us out. I learn a ton from a lot of these questions as well, because it takes me back to when I started out, and I have to remember specific things that I'm being asked and it's it's a great refresher. So I thank you all as well for submitting all these questions and and for us all to be on this journey. All right, let's get this party started. And I also wanted to say it's our 2-year anniversary which was in August, and a lot of our members submitted videos, and we ran a one-word video showing the power of the inner circle and our amazing community. So I wanted to thank everyone that submitted these videos, and Ben Richardson, who is um, working with us, that is a massive brainiac and incredible visionary storyteller edited this piece and I thought he did an incredible job. So, all right. Sorry for that interruption, but I just had to thank all those people. All right. Let's start with our first question. Hi, Shane. First of all, Thank you for sharing all this amazing inner circle and creating this website. I have a very simple question. Well, you're welcome. I heard that Roger Deakins likes to light the background first, then he puts the actor in. What do you think about this approach? Could be very interesting to have your point of view. Elieu from Paris. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but if I'm not, I'm sorry. Okay, this is... Roger Deakins is by far within the top five cinematographers of the world. I would put him at number one or two. Yes, I do exactly the same thing. When I come in, I put my camera down and I start lighting the background. The background is incredibly important because that creates your depth. And lighting in layers is something that I've talked about in several of the podcasts, as well as uh, several of our instructional videos, is that this layering of light creates a 3D approach. So the more you can layer in your background, in your midground, and in your foreground, the more your character is going to be able to pull out of it. And then you also have lenses that assist in that as well. I shoot with Cook lenses a lot. Well, the reason I shoot with Cooks is because the Cook lens is very unique 
in its color quality, its flaring, as well as its three-dimensionality. And when I say three-dimensionality, the 21 on a Cook looks incredibly different than a 21 on a Leica. The 21 on a Cook pushes the background at least 20 meters further away and pulls the character closer to the lens. The Leica is a flatter piece of glass, so it compresses the background so it feels like it's more on top of the individual and flattens the the character towards the lens. Now, that's just glass. But then when you add lighting to that element, you can further accent this 3D, you know, style. And I I go back to Need for Speed for a second because it's a great story. We shot the movie, we edited it, we did everything. We basically had it ready to release. And Steven Spielberg came in and saw the movie and he's like, I want to do this in 3D. So we took it to his 3D house that he had recommended and they did a five minute sequence within the film as a test run to see what the film would look and feel like in 3D. Generated all in post, not shooting stereo. And when we got it back, we were simply blown away. And then the woman who was the head stereographer came up to me and she said, I just wanted to tell you that this is probably the best lit film that I've ever been on that accents the 3D process. And I was like, whoa, that's huge. She goes, there's something in the lensing and something in the lighting that is enabling us to intensify the 3D experience in the post process that is much better than I've ever seen before. So I gave myself a little pat on the back and took that and really started to look at what I do differently in lighting and what and the power of using these cook optics. So getting back to your question, lighting the background is absolutely your first thing to do. When I plop the camera down, like let's say a night exterior scene, right? The first thing I'm doing is I'm sending a whole crew, you know, six, eight blocks down the street just to start lighting the background whether I'm using little bokeh lights, whether I'm side lighting buildings or washing them with a different tonality that's on the street so the character pops, whether it's headlight gags that are spinning in the background to accent and and make some motion. You know, it's everything is based on the background. Then you bring in the actor and then you form that specific light quality and quantity on the, the character within this environment. Now, what I've also found, and this is one thing that Harris Savitas, who left us way too early, he's probably, again, he's within the top five cinematographers, and any of you should start following his work. I mean, it ends shortly because I think it's two years ago now that he died of brain cancer, and he was such an incredibly talented director of photography. He was all about this process of lighting an area, lighting the background, lighting the environment, and letting the actors play within it. It's not about the marks, it's not about the specific areas of light, but it's about lighting the environment and letting the actors ebb and flow within it. And I worked with him as a gaffer for about a year and it was an incredible experience for me uh, learning from this incredible cinematographer and his subtleties and his just bare bones minimalistic style of lighting is is truly uh, revolutionary. And so I would say that this process that Roger Deakins talks about is something that that we will be teaching. Uh, We have a slew of new content coming out in 2017, and this will be a a huge part of it, is the lighting and layers and and the lighting the background. Now, to just enhance this a little bit, let me kind of describe the situation that I go through. So I would, if we're, if the camera's moving or if it's a motion shot or tracking or movie or whatever it is, my camera team will come in and they'll literally plop a camera down in the direction that we're shooting on sticks 
and hook it up to my Flanders DM250 monitor, and I will start to look at that light. Now, I only if I've lit the set already, I you know I'm lighting the set and I plop it down, and then as the the background starts to come to life, I start to look at color temperature within the camera. So the white balance, as well as choosing a specific LUT that I have on my monitor. We have 16 embedded LUTs that I built for this new film that I'm shooting. And I'm literally popping through them to find the right mood to and the, the right tone for this scene. Once I have the LUT kind of design based on my background lighting, then I will go for, you know, maybe augmenting the color temperature a little bit. Uh, it's not, it's too warm, then I'll cool the camera up a little bit, or it's too cold, then I'll warm it up. So I'm playing with the white balance. I'm also playing with green and magenta. I get very specific within the metadata of the red camera, the weapon. I'm literally selecting and adding magenta or adding green to my LUTs as well, you know, to the look based on, you know, what I'm seeing on the monitor. So this is kind of my process. Once I have that, I start, you know, I slide my exposure up and down and say, okay, in this environment, if it's a night street lighting and this, I have the lights that are, you know, that are rigged. I'm going sodium vapor, let's say, on the street, and they've been rigged to the street light poles themselves to create more light because in Prague, it's weird. These lights really don't put out anything. I think they're like 50 watts at the most, where in the States we have 400 watt. So, I mean, I couldn't even get an exposure on my meter reading at 2000 ISO. So I had to go in, get 200 watt sodium vapors and physically rig them to the street lights so I could have enough punch. But saying this, it's the process of first lighting your background, choosing your color temperature on your camera, as well as the lookup table that's going to give it the right mood and tone. And then you move forward with lighting your character. And most of the time, it's kind of a mix of Deacons and Harris because as lighting the background, I'm also lighting the environment, which then lets our actors have freedom and move around. And, and I try not to be too specific with the lighting in general and regards to hitting marks because it's not that they cannot do that. It's just that I love the freedom to move the camera much more. And when you have very specific lighting, it's hard for the camera to constantly move if, if it's very lighting specific to an area. All right, on to the next question. Hi, Shane. I appreciate your efforts with the inner circle. Well, thank you very much. I have a bunch of questions, but would love if you even just answered one. Well, how about I answer all of them? What are your thoughts on lighting setups and ratios as they pertain to different moods? Comedy, action, intense dialogue, romance, etc. All right, let me take that one. Lighting ratios is really everything to a cinematographer because that's your eye. And your eye has to be adjusted to that ratio. Case in point. If you shoot day exteriors and the sun is hitting somebody's face without adding any fill whatsoever, the skylight that is coming on the shadow side of his face will be two and a half stops down, guaranteed. So that ratio is what daylight is. Now you can intensify that ratio by adding negative fill, bring it down to three and a half stops. You can soften the sun or net the sun so you can make the ratio not as extreme, but that ratio is two and a half stops. So when you take in a comedy, most comedies are lit in a way that you see as much of their facial expressions and their eyes and the quirkiness of their hand movements or whatever they use if they're a physical comedian as well. And that's why a lot of times on comedies, you don't have a lot of close-ups. You tend to use more medium shots so you can take in the physicality of what the comedy is. So, but I have to say that when I did Semi-Pro, that was the first thing that the director and I talked about. 
We said that we were going to do close-ups when the story dictated it, and we were going to give uh, Will Ferrell the ability to move around and, and do what he does best, but I was not going to light it in the comedy sense. I was going to light it much more from a cinema-based sense, and he was cool with that. So that's the road that we went down, and uh, I think... The movie is awesome, and I, I love the look and feel and what we did on that movie. It feels very vintage, and, uh, you know, it's uh, I think that that comedy was able to come across, even though it was not lit like a comedy. But getting back to your question of ratios, sorry, I drifted off the path. You know, I think it's the ratios of a comedy, I would say, are two to two and a half stops down, kind of like the daylight mode. I would say... A action sequence can be anywhere from three and a half to five down to, you know, on the downside or using backlight and not much fill so you can barely see a person with uh, in an, like a suspense thriller style. There's also, you know, with action, you want to not miss the action either. So you want to make sure that you have enough light so you can see what is all going on as well. So I'd say three and a half stops down to four stops is really good for action. And then I would go five for you know, thriller-esque stuff where you really barely see somebody. And this all depends on what your your uh, ratios are based on the sensor that you're using. Some sensors see seven stops in the under, some see five, some see three. So, you know, you have to gauge that. And that's why I think Roger Deakins said it the best. He said, that when he shot film, he was more careful. When he shoots on digital, he can be fearless. And I feel the same. It's so funny because a DIT will come up to me and he goes, dude, there is nothing there. I go, exactly. He goes, yeah, but your file. I'm like, exactly. Thank you. Because it's not about getting the safe ratios and all this stuff so the image is balanced and you can do anything you want in post. I don't want to do anything I want in post. I want to bake that in. That is locked. So this is something as an artist, you know, with all these raw files and everything with film, it was easy to bake the look in. With digital, I find that it's getting more and more difficult. So what I do is I take the camera to its breaking point and that's where I like to live. And I think it's where Deacons loves to live as well with his whole digital embracing is that he says he can be fearless and I feel like I can be the same way. And it's been liberating for me. And that's where a good monitor is so important because you can be fearless. If you're working off of some small seven inch monitor that is not balanced and is not giving you accurate blacks and all that stuff, you, uh, then you definitely cannot be fearless. That's why I go with the Flanders. It is worth your weight in gold. If you're buying anything, you're never buying a camera. You are buying lenses and you are buying monitors because those two things are the core soul of your creations and the monitor is your eyes. So those two things are what you want to invest in. The camera is something that's going to change by the week. So so that's kind of the ratio thing. Basically, getting back to the question, basically I've learned about key light, fill light, backlight, and background light, but what ratios would be would you want these lights at with regard to the scenarios? So, I mean, each lighting situation, you know, sometimes they're side lit, sometimes they're three-quarter lit, sometimes they're backlit with an edge uh, and just filled. I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios for this and, you know, lighting scenarios, not just genre scenarios. So it's, it's kind of a loaded question that would take the whole podcast to really go into, but basically as, as a key light scenario in a comedy world, I would make it two to two and a half stops down the key to fill ratio. If I was doing a action, it would probably be three and a half. If I was doing a 
romance, uh, it would be three, maybe. If I'm doing horror, it would be four to five, playing with a lot of silhouettes and semi-silhouettes, using a lot more backlight and edge light. So they're always kind of coming in and out of shadows. Yeah. Okay. Next part of the question, which light are you exposing for? Well, you're usually exposing for in a day interior, day exterior, uh, night interior, you're usually exposing for the key light. So whatever that, that light is on their face, that's what you're exposing for. In a moonlit scenario, a night moonlight, then I'm exposing for the backlight. So the backlight is my first light that I put up. And then I start to fill. Where in the environment of first I light the background, then I set the key, then I set a backlight, then I set a fill light. Fill light's usually the last thing I add. So that's kind of the process. Okay, I light the background. Lighting mid-ground. Okay, where are the actors playing? All right, now I'm going to work on their key light. Then I'm going to work on the backlight if they need one. And if they don't, then I'm going to end with fill. And the fill is not only on their face, but it's also fill within the environment. So if I see a dark corner that I don't really want to go so dark that I'm adding a little bounce or a little fill over there, if something just is looking too stark and contrasting, I'm adding a little fill there. So the fill is usually my last light that I engage or turn on or administer. So let's go through this one last time. So background lighting is the first thing that I'm doing. Once I've lit the background, I've set my color balance, my white balance on my camera. I've set my uh, exposure, kind of dialed it in within the background. Then I have chosen a LUT, a lookup table on my monitor. And now I start with my key light which is going to be lighting my characters. Then I add a backlight if I need a backlight to the scene. And the last thing I add is the fill light. Are you white balancing your camera to a specific light or choosing an in-camera color balance based on a creative decision? Everything is in camera. I never go to the color balance or the white balance and choose cloud, sun, or light bulb ever. Everything is a custom. And everything is a custom in regards to never being like where you should be. Like daylight is usually 5,500, I'm 56. Sometimes, I mean, it's 56, it all depends. You go across the world and the color temperature changes 100, 200, 300 degrees. But I try to be around 5,600. On a Canon, I'm at 5,200. Now, why? Well, that's a great question. The reason you're at 5,200 with a Canon is because the Canon sees red in a much different way than all the other sensors do. So by going to 5200, you are knocking the red down just ever so slightly. So that's been my recipe, even starting back on Active Valor, shooting with the Canon 5D. 5200, that's what I set my, my Canon sensor at. I never use 3200 either on any camera. I'm either 33, 31, 29. If I'm doing night exterior work, lighting with tungsten, I'm at 2900 Kelvin. If I'm doing a mix of daylight and tungsten, I'm at 4100. You see, I'm always customizing my white balance, my color wheel there in regards to either scrolling that reel on a Canon or going into your red weapon or dragon or scarlet and selecting it via the touch screen. But it's always, or the black magic where you can only have four or five different color temperatures. That's one thing I really have been stressing on them to change because finding that beautiful elegance between the colors of daylight and tungsten is your power as a cinematographer and it creates that fearlessness. Okay, what factors about a scene help you determine camera placement and movement? Well, camera placement and movement is really based on 
whatever the environment is, if you are motivating light through windows uh, and you want that, I mean, this is a very, very deep, dark, long question. (laughs) So let me put it to you this way. The content in 2017, we are going to be going into blocking, camera placement, lens choice, all this stuff. So I'm going to kind of leave this question uh, for the content that's going to be coming out uh, to help you in this process, because this is a very long one. Okay, his last question, last part of one question. If you were going to purchase a 1.2K HMI, would you choose an HMI Fresnel or an HMI PAR and why? Thanks again for your help and consideration of these questions. Gratefully, Brent. Well, Brent, I've answered all of them except one, and I will answer your 1.2K HMI. You should buy a Parlite. The Parlite can do 40 things. The Fresnel can do 10. And you have much more punch with a with a PAR. And I would recommend going up 600 watts and getting the Airy 1.8. So the M18 uh, would be a great investment uh, for you if you're going to be purchasing that light. Because uh, that has much more punch, can still go on a 20 amp circuit in a house. And it gives you the ability to now having that more, much more firepower because an M18 gives you what a, almost what a 2,500 watt par, uh, like an LTM or a, or a mole 2,500 watt par gives you. The, the M series is far more powerful with that cool reflector that they designed. So that will give you a lot more output, which gives you the ability to bounce and then diffuse again. So you can book light because you have much more punch. It can be hot streaks of sun or even I use it to mimic daylight. So if I'm flying 18 through a window, the M18 spotted in will give me hot highlights in the background. So it's a very versatile light. So I would recommend that because of its firepower as well as the ability to to have that extra amount of wattage to be able to do more bouncing, more diffusing more creating sunlight. You know, it spot floods beautifully. It's got a very nice, even field. So uh, I think that's where I would go. All right, on to the next question. Should one white balance the night so that white looks blue? For some reason, maybe it's just me, but most movies at night tend to have a blue tint, even on the skin tones. Do they do all that color pushing in post or can it be done using white balance on set to bake the look. Okay. So I kind of went into this a little bit, but I'll expand even more because I love this question. All right. So like I said, everything is based on custom color balance in regards to using your color temp within your sensor to be able to dial it in 100 degrees at a time. So if I'm shooting night exteriors, and I went into this in my night exterior lighting tutorials that if you shoot with HMI light, then by choosing your color temp, you can slide it and make it bluer, obviously. So if you went to 3,800 Kelvin or 4,000 degrees, that's going to be a very blue moonlight. And that's what I did on Into the Badlands. I'm never a blue moonlight guy, ever. But I wanted this series to look different and unique. So I went the exact polar opposite of what I usually do. And that's something that I always try, you know, is being uncomfortable is a good thing. And I had never really done this before, so I wanted to do it. And I made LUTs that injected a lot of green into that blue. So the moonlight was cyan. And I felt that that was... You know, 500 years after the bombs went off, whatever it did to the atmosphere, it made the moonlight cyan. That was my reasoning. But on all my other movies that I've ever shot, I do a gray moonlight. And I do it by using tungsten. So I use tungsten lights, and then I take my color temperature and I slide it to 2,900 Kelvin. So if my tungsten light is 3,200, I'm using that 300 degrees going below the 3,200, which 
cools up that moonlight ever so slightly and turns it into a gray tonality. It is, it works like a million bucks. And tungsten moonlight looks different than HMI. And this is what I went into in this series where you see it lit with kind of a HMI light. And then we turn that off and we put a tungsten light up and it has a whole different quality to it. It's softer. It's not so harsh. And that is something that I like. The way it wraps and, and hits the skin is a much, I think, much better uh, way of lighting night exteriors. And I've done the tungsten vibe my whole career. So, and so pushing the color in post can be done as well. You can slide that color, but know that if you're sliding that color tone as well, in post, then everything is going along with it. So what I try to do is in camera, I do the 2900 Calvin. And with the 2900 Calvin, it's taking my tungsten light and making it slightly cooler. Well, if I have a tungsten light in a window, then it's going to cool that light up as well. Well, do I want the light inside a house that's supposed to be more warm uh, cooled up as well? No. So on the day, you're seeing that. So you add half CTS, you know, Roscoe half CTS, the straw, to that light. So by cooling up to 2,900 Kelvin and cooling your tungsten, you're taking that light, putting half CTS on it. Now it's warmer. So when you do cool up the tungsten, it stays a nice, warm, practical light sense. You see how I'm using the, the power of gel, or if that was a sky panel in the room, you could easily dial the color temperature of the sky panel down to that. But again, the sky panel only goes so far. 2700 Calvin is not low enough. You need to go in the 2400 and 2100 Calvin area. So this will look still rich and warm. So these are the things that you're thinking about, but this is something that you want to bake in, in your metadata, in your camera. And then in post, if you want to slightly cool it up a little bit, it's already kind of there and it's just a very subtle accent. And that, that, that does not affect all your other lights because you've gone through the process of putting your tungsten backlight up as your moonlight, using your tungsten fill as ambient moonlight for their faces. And then you've gone in and systematically made warmer lights in the background because you're already cooling it within the inner workings and the metadata of the camera. So these are important tips for you to really understand and grasp because this is everything. Right? I talk about investing in glass and investing in monitors. Well, this is a perfect example because you're trying to bake in a look. And by baking in that look, you have to have a great monitor that shows you exactly what you're baking in and has all the right levels and right contrast and nice blacks and, and, and good contrast. And then you can use color you know, color contrast to be able to make the scene work. Because you can go for, like, if the scene is just out in the woods, then everything should be that coolish tone. But if you're out in the woods and deep in the background is a cabin and there's supposed to be warm light coming out of that cabin, well, if you're lighting just with a tungsten source and you're also using tungsten as your moonlight, they will all look the same tonality as you cool it down within your color temperature of your camera. So you need to add the warmth to those interior lights so you get the color contrast when you go for spinning that color wheel. All right. Next question. Shane, can you do a video series on exposing for RAW, specifically the Blackmagic Cinema Camera 2.5K? I would love to learn from you how you actually would light a night scene and a day interior with this camera. Thank you. Sincerely, Davi. 
All right, Davi. Uh, we we are going to definitely go into this, and I'm also going to be creating a whole series of lookup tables for the Black Magic camera, the whole Black Magic line, Ursa, Black Magic Cinema Camera, Pocket Camera. This is something that I've been. Once I get off this feature, my team and I were hunkering down, and we're going to try and create these LUTs. Don't hold me to it. There's a lot going on, so you know I don't want to say you know, you promised me. So we're going to, it's definitely something up on the whiteboard for us to do. So we're looking to create those lookup tables so you can light much easier because that's the the thing that I find with the Blackmagic sensor is it's a very, very flat sensor, very much like the Aria Alexa. And it's hard to manipulate. It takes a good amount of color correction to to get it balanced correctly. And so we're trying to run these new LUTs. And once they're out, uh, I think it's going to make everyone's life easier because I really haven't seen any good ones on the web that really take this camera to its next level. So we're going to be doing that. But just like any raw file, you have to bake contrast in. You cannot bake contrast into a raw file if that's all you're looking at. Because what you will do is you will severely underexpose your raw file to try and get contrast because you're like, you know, it's just not dark enough. It's just the gray. It's too gray. Well, that's what a log file is. A raw file is very gray. So, you have to have a good lookup table that takes that gray area and just makes it black. And then you can really start to expose uh, your digital sensor, your digital negative. So, yes, we will be making some lookup tables for all of you in the future and videos on exposing that camera. That's interesting. Uh, I know we have a lot of black magic shooters out there. So I will... Uh, Run that up the flagpole to my team and see if we can make that happen because it's a great idea. All right, next question. Hi, Shane. The virtual mentorship you're providing is invaluable, as is the community it has created. Thank you, and please keep it up. Well, you are very welcome, and thank you for those kind words. I'm starting a stylized vampire feature in June. Oh, sorry about that. I'm a little late on this question. Well, all of our members will share in this <laughs> that is focused on four sets on a stage. The director wants to shoot in two directions for performance reasons. It is a dark and moody atmosphere set in a Victorian set dressing style with human trafficking as its sub story. Wow. This sounds interesting. What lighting tips can you give me for creating a darker mood while still allowing the actor's freedom of movement and the ability to look both directions at once in coverage? Thank you, Gallo. All right, Gallo. This can be done pretty much two ways. You can do it with top light. So by top lighting your scenes, you're able to move literally 360 degrees. Because the light is coming from the top, you have contrast on all sides. So that's one way. Another way is to bring it from one side. So if it's side lit, whether it's windows, whether it's, you know, firelight, whether it's gaslight, whatever the motivation is, candle operas, and it's coming from one side, then you can light in both directions. But that is pretty much, you know, the only way. So I did a ton of this in Fathers and Daughters. Gabriel Muccino wanted it for performance reasons as well. He wanted to do two over the shoulders at the same time, as well as a 50-50. So, and a 50-50 is where both your actors are kind of in profile. You're seeing 50% of one actor and 50% of the other. So by doing this, it limits you on exactly how you can light and it takes longer to light. 
Because obviously, if you're shooting opposing cameras, that light quality on the faces, especially if you're going in for close-ups at the same time, has to be manicured and look really good. So Gabriel Muccino was totally fine with me taking a little longer to light for three cameras because he knew once we got started, he would get that performance by the second or third take, and we were done. And we moved very quickly on this movie. and. You know, I was watching it the other day because we're using a lot of fathers and daughters for our 2017 content, like the motivation of like talking about blocking, talking about camera lens choice, talking about composition, short side, all these things are, are going to be in 2017. And I was watching that movie and God, Gabriel Muccino is a, is such a talented director. I mean, it is just incredible how beautiful the camera moves and it's very minimal coverage and just letting the actors deliver the performance and not worry about close-ups and extreme close-ups and all this stuff that that I'm usually asked to do with other directors. Uh, he just, he was fine with two 27 mil overs. He was fine with it. It got the performance. They delivered. We move on. And it was really um, inspiring because he would let me light those environments. We would shoot it and the actors would move within it. And then he would say, all right, we got it. And the actors are like, what? Octavia Spencer comes in and we shoot five pages of dialogue in three hours. And she's like, what is going on here? And that's all the power of being able to move the camera with them, ebb and flow, and shoot opposing cameras. And you do this by enabling either the side light option uh, and wrapping it around ever so slightly so they're not so dark on the other side of their face. And uh, that's what I would create. I would create a U of light, a very flat U. So if my side light antic, you know, my technique is utilized and you're doing imposing coverage, then I'm, let's say we use Westcott spider lights for an example. Okay. And I create that environment to be able to do opposing cameras. I would put two large Westcott's as the side light. So if I'm doing over the shoulders and they're sitting at a table or standing two or three feet away from each other, then I have two Westcots that are rigged up outside a frame, and that is the side light. Then I would bring another two Westcots around and create kind of an angle, a very flat U. And when I say with a flat U, imagine a U that doesn't have really high sides. So that is the two Westcots. Uh, and the Westcots are like 42 inches each. So you're looking at, you know, eight feet of light basically as the side light. And then you're looking at two forefoots that are put on like 30 or 40 degree angles from that side light that then wrap it around. And then you can shoot opposing cameras beautifully as well as your 50-50 because you can rig that light up outside of the frame and shoot and light your background that is then motivating your uh, side light. Like if there's a window there, then you're motivating this light with, I would use instead of uh, the Westcott's, if I'm using window light, I would put sky panels up there because it's nice and soft. If it's hard, then I could do the soft sky panels and then bring through the windows hot sunlight that would like ricochet off the ground and hit the hit them uh you know to edge light them so these are all specific things in the side light mode and then if you want complete freedom to move 360 degrees then you go into the top light mode house of cards is a perfect example of just using beautifully exposed top light as they move within the spaces and um and i'm using that a ton on this film i'm shooting adventures specifically because of the chinese the asian face most of the people are from hong kong or beijing or taiwan and that structure of the face loves top light. It's a flatter face and their eyes are more are shallow. So by using top light, you don't get the skull light that you get from 
you know, a Caucasian English male or female. So it's much more forgiving using top light. So I've used a lot of top light in this movie. All right. Next question. Hi, Shane. Nolan from Trinidad here. Beautiful platform you have. Well, thank you so much. Not sure if it's worth your time, but could you comment on lighting for very dark skin tones? Well, of course it's worth my time. You're in the inner circle. So this is why you're here, and this is why I'm here to help all of you. Here in the Caribbean, 99% of the persons are black, or what you may call a bad suntan. <laughs> okay. In addition, our position to the equator gives us a harsher form of sunlight. Yes, it does. That's a double whammy for us. Can you help us get Hollywood lighting and exposures? Thanks, Nolan. This is a great question because I found that I light African-American skin, black skin tone, much differently than I light a, a Caucasian or an Asian. Kind of what I was saying with Asians, you can get away with more top light. With Caucasians, you got to be, you got to bring that light down much more and uh, bring it into their eyes so you don't get the skull eyes scenario where you get these two black holes. But with black skin tones, I find it's all about reflection. So you're reflecting light into their skin. Not so much projecting light, but reflecting. So I use a lot more edge lights uh, with black skin tone. I use, I don't light the skin as much. It's completely polar opposite. If you are, the worst thing you can do is over light black skin because what it ends up doing is it becomes, because it's the sheen factor, when you use really very large sources, they tend to work much better. When you use small hot sources on their skin, they tend to reflect like a hot spot on their forehead. But you're getting exposure, but that hot spot on the forehead is now clipping because you're trying to light their whole skin to the right value. So if you look at like Mr. 3000 is a perfect example. Bernie Mac is jet black. And Bernie Mac is, I was using a lot of reflectivity, uh, a lot of lighting, not so much, you know, letting the skin tones uh, fall in, into a deeper tone of light, using warmer tones with uh, with black skin tones. I find that a warmer uh, color brings out uh, the tone much better. I wasn't into, like a lot of people have talked about adding chocolate and stuff like that as a gel to lights. I don't go that far. Uh, I'll warm them up. My batten lights look absolutely stunning on, uh, on African-American black skin tone um, because it's got you know, a 2400 Calvin instead of 3200. I use a lot of, I'll use Kino Flows as a hot edger that sheens the skin. You know, these are kind of the techniques. In regards to your daylight and being close to the equator, and obviously that that light is very, very toppish and very cold as well. It's a, it's a very blue tone down by the equator. You know, I, I'm using a lot of also bounce to fill in their eyes, and but not too close, just giving enough exposure to kind of take the harshness of that, that direct sunlight away. So imagine you, if you're not waking up at like when the sun rises, soon at 8 a.m., the sun is at like 37 degrees, which is already out of somebody's eyes. So that's another little tip. When you look at your sun path or your sun seeker app or whatever you have on your phone to kind of track the sun, 37 degrees is basically the tipping point. After that, it doesn't get into anyone's eyes. So after 37 degrees, you have lost it in their eyes. 
So now if you want an eye light, it's not going to be from the sun. So that has to be done by either reflecting, you know, bounce cards or, you know, math bounces 12 by 12 or 8 by 8 or 12 by 20 into their eyes to fill them up. And being down at the equator, that 37 degrees comes very quickly. So I would say that you're using, you know, my Lowell beadboard. Beadboard is a very non-reflective source. It's reflective, obviously, because it's white, but it doesn't have a hot kick to it like foam core does. So by using that, you can, you're going to get nice exposure in their eyes as well as filling in that harsh top light that you have in Ecuador. So that's one thing. And I use circle bounces. So I take a four foot and I cut it into a circle. So it looks very nice within their uh, eyes as well as it rounds their face and exposure. And I would play around with the color temperature of your camera to make the light just a little warmish, go slightly uh, warmer. So if if 5,600 is your daylight, maybe I would try 6,000 Kelvin, and that will warm up your uh, very cold overhead top light and also give a more richness to the black skin tones. And by using these techniques of not overlighting, do not add more light to African-American and black skin tone, but actually use uh, the ability of reflectivity and reflective light sources and bounces and big, soft bounces, not hot, small sources, which are going to be very, if from a key light scenario, from a key light scenario, if you're using hot, small sources, that is going to clip out on some reflective area on their skin and it's going to be it's not going to look so good so you need to use larger sources that aren't so hot that then do not create this weird reflectivity and again it's all based on the individual's face each face is different some african-american skin tones and black skin tones have a color tone within it that picks up light absolutely beautifully and you don't have to, and you can light them very much like you would light a Caucasian or an Asian or Hispanic. Um, but if they're jet black, like Bernie Mac or Don Cheadle, like in the Rat Pack, I really learned to light him throughout the movie much differently than how I began. So it was a learning curve for me starting out as a, as a young cinematographer. I realized that you know, not to overlight black skin tone. That was the big takeaway from that movie. And then I applied that to Bernie Mac in Mr. 3000 as well. All right, last question. Shane, I find the IC to be a great inspiration. It's really been a positive influence in my life. Since joining, I've already managed to finally get my reel and website together to a point that I think is acceptable in this competitive industry. Many thanks to you, Lydia, and your wonderful family and crew for the great content and commitment. This is awesome. Thank you so much. That really warms my heart. Um, I mean, when Lydia and I set out on this mission and this journey together with all of you, the single most important thing to us as entrepreneurs, as artists, is to successfully create a very long career for you as a visual storyteller. One that gives you so much depth and dimension and so many unique techniques and experience way beyond your years that makes you incredibly marketable wherever you are. That's our mission statement because that is, that's what it's all about is changing lives and helping people through this process. And, you know, light is not talked about much. And the reason that the inner circle has a is very light heavy is because there's nothing out there that really shows you and breaks it down and emotionally connects you to why you do 
what you do. And so that's really why I've kind of focused that way. And we are going to, in 2017, we're mixing it up with a lot more lens and composition because we have been lighting heavy. But I just want you to understand, all of you to understand the reason. Because lighting is power. If you can light, then your images are going to look far superior to the people that cannot. And there's a lot more that cannot than can. So the inner circle is really about giving you that long standing career by giving you experience way beyond your years. All right, the question. In an upcoming podcast, I thought it might be of interest to talk about smoke and hazers, the equipment as well as the juice and techniques used. I see it as an important element in many of your shoots, along with lighting. Smoke is written in on most of your schematics, as well as in your look documents, as seen in the director and director of photography's relationship, the blend of art and science event. So maybe you could elaborate some tricks of the trade in this area. Many thanks, Mike Bedick. All right, Mike, great question. Okay, yes, smoke is a big part of how I light and lens. On adventures, I've been burned by the smoke factor. So I'm a little gun shy of what I know in my post process, this movie is going to be very difficult to balance. The reason being is if you are using a water-based smoke machine, you are destined for failure. And most sets cannot use oil-based. Specifically within the States, there's finally been some hazers that came out. Roscoe has made hazers that are water-based that give you a very, very even field and keep consistent. But most of the water-based ones that aren't these specific manufacturers do not keep a consistent they swirl, they reveal the fact that you have smoke instead of this texture. And the texture is everything because when the light hits it, it creates this beautiful gauze effect within the background. And then you can take your contrast knob and really crank it down and all those areas that look very flat now become, you know, a beautiful black tone, but you can still see into the shadows and the balance is absolutely perfect. When smoke is done well and is consistent and is not too heavy, it is magical. But when it's inconsistent and it's very thick and then it's very thin and then it's not there at all and then it swirls, all I can tell you is one, you're going to reduce the shots that you get on the day because you're worried about the smoke. And this is kind of, you know, what I went through with Badlands. It was very difficult in these environments to create consistent smoke levels. I was using these lawnmower foggers to be able to create this consistency, but obviously we couldn't have them going while the take was going on. So I had to have these things fog an area way deep, let the wind kind of bring it in. And as it brought it in, that's when we rolled. Well, it's time consuming. There's also the tube of death is what I call it. And this tube of death you put out in the woods or wrap around your set. So depending on wherever the wind direction is, you're able to turn this, you basically push uh, smoke into a long plastic tube and then you cut holes within it every 10, 12 feet. And then this creates an even consistent level uh, of smoke on your scene. Now, the problem I have is that most of the places in the States only deliver a brown. It's a tan color. Tan colored smoke with Caucasian or Asian or uh, Hispanic skin tone in an environment is not good because tan hits the sun and the sun makes it warmer. So now you have no color contrast. The reason I use lawnmower smoke for day exteriors and night exteriors is because it has a blue tonality in it. So when I went to Prague, they don't use lawnmower smokers. 
So I was like, what am I going to do? I need to fog, you know, I need to to put this smoke out in the forest. I need to do all these things. And the guy's like, no problem. I have blue smoke that I can put in the tube of death. And I was like, oh my God, bring it out for a test. I want to make sure it's not some funky, very saturated blue. And of course it wasn't. It was just slightly cooler than daylight. And what that did is it created color contrast. So you had your daylight coming in, and when the sun hit the smoke, it went just slightly cooler. When it was in the shadow areas, it was slightly cooler. It just had a wonderful tonality that gave you the color contrast in a scene that would be mainly a couple different tones. So this was very powerful for us, and we were able to, by using this cooler smoke within the tube of death, keep much more consistent smoke, as well as we, the machines are very quiet, so you can keep it running during the take, so your smoke doesn't all of a sudden go from being in the scene to out of the scene by the end of your three or four minute dialogue. So that was huge for us. So I highly recommend the tube of death for night exterior, moonlight, forest day exterior, where you want to create the shafts, all that kind of stuff. The tube of death is definitely a consistent way to keep your smoke level, but make sure they go with a bluer tonality than the tan smoke tonality. Using oil-based smokers like the DF-50 from Real Effects. That's my favorite smoker across the board. Hazer. Using the Roscoe Hazer water-based is my favorite water-based Hazer. And that has an incredible consistency like the uh, oil-based. So those are, and again, uh, here's a, a pearl of wisdom and a tip. If you're doing multi-cameras, with smoke. Think about it. If I'm doing a 21 millimeter and at the same time I'm doing a 100 millimeter close-up, what do you think that 100 millimeter close-up is going to look like? It's going to look mushy. And the reason being is you are shooting through levels of smoke and lit smoke. So the more you shoot through that smoke, you are softening the image and lowering the contrast. So it's hard to shoot multi-camera when using smoke. You can get away with it by, in the color correction bay, you can add more contrast to the, to the long lens shots. And that's what I ended up doing in Badlands because we did have to shoot multiple cameras while using the smoke. And it worked out very well. But as an artist, I can still see the difference. So it always bugs me to some extent. But that being said, you have to understand that there's pitfalls to using smoke. Uh, it's a time suck. It's very difficult to get even. You're going to spend a lot of time managing it. And you can't shoot multiple cameras if you're going long. If you're going mediums and wides, absolutely. If you're going wide and super tight, it's going to be mushy. You're going to have to go back in your color correction process and try to crank more contrast into those shots. But it's worth it for the look and specifically what you're able to do uh, once you get into the color correction bay by balancing the contrast out, by crushing down, cutting through the smoke is what I call it. So I'll smoke a scene, I'll put the LUD up, it still looks somewhat flat, but I know in the color correction, I'll be able to cut the smoke by using, you know, decreasing your blacks by bringing them down and that cuts through kind of clarifies the image ever so slightly. But at the same time, you're able to hold those subtle details in the shadow that if you did not have smoke, you would not see. So this is kind of the, the process. And I think it's in the digital sensor age, it's kind of a gauze effect that kind of we've, we lose uh, in digital that we had in film because film had the grain and that grain was a texture 
there was a nice gauze effect. So I'm always kind of using the smoke as that layer of gauze for the digital sensor. And uh, on adventures, you know, like I said, I, I've been burned and time schedule wise, what we can shoot uh, within the time parameters and how long we have our actors. So I've stayed away from smoke a lot more than I would have based on those conditions. So you see how the schedule the ability of how long you have your actors, these all play into whether you play the smoke card and locations. Locations are going to tell you that you can't use smoke in a lot of situations as well. When we went to do Fathers and Daughters, I had smoke in my mindset, but I was not able to smoke probably 60% of our locations. So I just, can, I just axed it. We didn't use smoke at all in that movie because of that one fact that we could not use it in 60% of our locations. So I didn't want the look to be inconsistent based on that. All right. Well, that concludes our September 2016 podcast. I thank you all for these amazing questions. And I cannot stress enough, this community is built on all of you all of your wonderful sharing, as well as all of your wonderful questions. So please continue to submit these in the question area of your podcast area within the Inner Circle website so we can continue to educate this incredible community that inspires Lydia and I and our whole HV team to deliver you the best content on lighting, camera, and visual storytelling on the planet. All right, take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is knowledge you can trust people that care that's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com hi i'm shane hurlbut and i'm an asc cinematographer and thanks for joining us for another episode of the filmmakers academy podcast take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships networking events and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20. And join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.